All right, good morning once again. Go ahead and open up our Bibles to the sixth chapter of the Gospel according to Luke. Luke chapter 6. We're kind of looking at the concluding words of Jesus this morning on what's been called the Sermon on the Mount. And some would actually distinguish this account from Luke and call it separately the Sermon on the Level. Because of verse 17 where it says that Jesus came down and stood on a level place. But this very well could be a level place on the side of the mountain. And so I think we don't really need to make a huge deal of this as to whether it's a separate sermon of Jesus. Or if this was just simply Luke's account here according to the many eyewitnesses that he had carefully investigated. But here in these texts we have the conclusion to all that Jesus has been teaching and doing with his disciples that began all the way back into verse 20. Now, we have some somewhat controversial waters to cross this morning uh, that has arisen in evangelicalism within the last year or so, and I'll explain why in just a moment. And Steve sort of dipped our toes into it, if you will, last week. Uh, But they really shouldn't be controversial because I would think that if you actually started cutting out and cutting away from Scripture the things that we're supposed to do, I think you would end up with something like the Jeffersonian Bible. There wouldn't be much meat left to it. And so we're going to look at that and see if we're actually supposed to do something in response to the gospel. So... We're going to be looking at specifically this morning verses 46 through 49 of Luke chapter 6. And if you're there and you're able to stand with me, I invite you to stand for reading of God's Word. Luke chapter 6, verse 46 through 49. Verse 46 says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord? And do not do what I say. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and acts on them, I will show you whom he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid a foundation on the rock. And when a flood occurred, the torrent burst against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who has heard and has not acted accordingly, is like a man who built a house on the ground without any foundation. And the torrent burst against it, and immediately it collapsed, and the ruin of that house was great. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it instructs us, and comforts us, and exhorts us. Father, we want to know more about you, Lord, so we can worship you in spirit and truth. So this morning, Lord, help our attention to be focused on your word. Help us to cast aside the things in this world that so easily ensnare our minds. And help our hearts to be just enlarged and more full of understanding truly how good you are to us. Father, we pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. You may be seated. There are some things in that Jesus Christ says in his word that should cause us to pause and carefully and very circumspectly consider what he is saying. 
And it's not like up to this point, we really haven't had to do that. And I must be honest with you, as, as I've been preaching through this, this series here, this few verses, it's been difficult because it's, it, you, have to, you can't just read this and not evaluate yourself against God's Word. So back in verse 20, Jesus took what many in his day, and sadly what many in our day, would perceive as a truly religious person, someone who's right with God and experiencing all the blessings and the fruits of God and a right relationship with God. And he, he used the earthly examples of what the world views as a successful and happy person materially, and he turned it right side up, and he used it as an illustration as to what should be the characteristic of a true disciple of Jesus Christ. The blessed or the happy are those who are poor, hungry, sad, and hated. And again, this was all in relation to their spiritual state, all in relation to their sin. We come to God on His terms. We don't clean up our lives and then get right with God. We can only come to God when we realize that we are spiritually impoverished. We are hungry for righteousness. When we are sorrow over our sinfulness before a holy and just God. And then, as a result of that relationship with Jesus, the world will then begin to ostracize you and revile you for the sake of the name of Jesus Christ. Now, it's at that point, every single one of us should have paused right there and asked ourselves if we are truly a disciple of Christ. Have we been persecuted or excluded or reviled because of whom we identify with Jesus Christ? Or are we walking around this world and looking at doing the things of this world and seeking the popularity of the world that they really can't tell a difference between us and the world, or they can't tell a difference because of our relationship with Jesus Christ. As if that wasn't enough for us to consider, Jesus wants to again row against the current and extend an unnatural love or a supernatural love to those who would be our enemies, and to do good to those who hate us, and to bless those who curse us and pray for those who mistreat us. We're to engage in a supernatural love for those who are our enemies, just as God extended to us when we were enemies to the cross. We're to be engaging in supernatural deeds when our flesh wants to retaliate. We're to speak supernatural words when our tongues want to curse and tear down those who hate and oppose us. We're to engage in unnatural prayers for those who revile and mistreat us. We're to lend to people without ever expecting anything back in return. In a word, we are called to be different. And again, every single one of us should have stopped right there after reading that and asked ourselves if these characteristics are a reality in our lives. Am I a loving, doing, blessing praying person, especially to those who hate, curse, and mistreat me. We didn't say it wouldn't be difficult. We didn't say it wouldn't be easy, because apart from Christ, you can do nothing. But if they are not characteristic of us as believers, we need to repent. 
And we need to ultimately ask ourselves if Jesus Christ is ruling and reigning in our hearts. And so, Jesus once again, He ratchets up the demands for truly being a disciple of His. Not only is the demands for discipleship high in terms of what we're to be doing externally, but He is also concerned about our dispositions internally, and that we are not to be judgmental, a condemning person, but we are to be a forgiving and giving person. And this wasn't a call to not discern or to make moral judgments, but it was a call to not have a judgmental and condemning spirit. Just as he hung on the cross between two thieves and he cried out, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. The heart of a true disciple of Jesus Christ beats with the same grace and the same mercy that He has bestowed upon us. And again, we need to stop. We need to examine ourselves as to whether this is practically lived out in our lives. These are not just checkboxes that you can merely, and merely external exhortations and simply that you can just check off and say, well, we'll get to that when we can get to that. But these are admonitions from the Lord of glory to his disciples and ultimately to us to carefully examine our lives from the inside out. This should make us cry out like David in Psalm 139. 23 and 24, who says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and my anxious thoughts, and see if there be any hurtful way in me, and lead me in the everlasting way. And then Jesus continues on his, in His discourse and warns us of the perils of listening to false teachers. Many of you heard me say that when you first become a Christian, your number of teachers is massive. It's large. There's a big group that you'll listen to just because they name the name of Christ. But as you grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you study His Word, and as you mature in the faith, and you start to understand uh, that all those teachers are actually teaching, your circle of teachers becomes smaller and smaller. Jesus then condemns hypocritical judgments in the familiar log-in-the-eye parable, and he warns that those who teach or reprove sin should strive for blamelessness in their lives themselves. The famed Scottish pastor Robert Murray McShane was noted to say that one of the greatest needs of his people is his personal holiness. Could we not say that to even our fathers in these homes today? Is not one of the greatest needs of your wife and your children is that of your own personal holiness? When you have your relationship with God and you love and serve and worship right, then your relationship with your wife and your wives and your children will fall into line. That's what Ephesians 5 talks about. But then Jesus continues on to teach us that there are tests to determine one's true character, and that is one's conduct and one's speech. And he does so by questioning whether we are producing any spiritual produce. Do we see any visible fruit in our lives? As you examine your own life and conduct, do you see any love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control? Do you see these being manifested in your life? And equally important, do others see that in you as well? 
Are you seeking to live a holy life pleasing unto God? Are you a repentant person? Are you bearing fruit? Because if there is no fruit, there is no root. J.C. Ryle said this, he said, When fruit, such fruit is lacking, it is profane to talk of people having the Spirit of God within them. Are you producing good fruit? These are heavy words. These are weighty words. These are solemn words that Jesus Christ is asking us to evaluate within ourselves. But he doesn't stop there. He's not done with his disciples and he's not done with us yet. He's not going to end this sermon with some fluffy message on how you can live your best life now or how you can have greater marital intimacy or in our marriages or how you can have a more robust bank account. So in verse 46, he asks, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Now, first of all, I need to remind you of whom Jesus was addressing here, and it's comprised of a large crowd of his disciples. And then there was also, as verse 17 and 18 tells us, a great throng of people who were looking to be healed of various diseases and unclean spirits. In other words, there was a variety of people here with various commitments into coming and listening to Jesus Christ. You had the disciples and the great throng of people. Some may have just been curious. Some may be in a more desperate state. Some may have been just there because of the fascination with this large crowd that's coming to hear what he has to say. And still, there may have been some that were faithful. But back in verse 20, he tells us that he begins his discourse that he is turning his gaze to his disciples. And we know from Acts, there was at least 120 faithful disciples that followed him up to that point when they chose Matthias. He's primarily addressing his followers or those who have identified him as their teacher. So first of all, he starts out by asking them, why do you call me Lord, Lord? And the Greek word here is kurios. It's, it's, it's saying at one time would have been used uh, and to understand that someone that you are acknowledging them as a teacher or a master. It was a term of respect. It was to acknowledge them as the teaching authority. And as we saw earlier, the disciples were cautioned and they were warned to not align themselves with false teachers because in the first century, you didn't have a public school system. You had individuals teaching individuals or groups of individuals. And so you had to be selective and wise in who you wanted to be your teacher. But these people weren't just acknowledging him as a teacher, because it says it twice. And when you do that, it is an even more firm, intense affirmation of allegiance. It's a double emphasis in that Jesus is unique and the highest among all teachers, and there is no one else in whom they are going to look for instruction. He's the master of master, the sovereign over all sovereigns. Curios, by the way, comes from a root word that is kuros, which means supremacy. 
So to say it twice was, in fact, a means to say it emphatically, that he was the supreme of supremes. It's sort of similar to the angels around the throne of God in Isaiah 6 who cry out to God that he alone is holy. And they don't do it just once. They don't do it twice, but they do it three times as if to say that one time will simply not do justice to declaring and describing the immense holiness of God. But they cry out, holy, holy, holy. But Jesus is probably implying a little more here than just sir or teacher. In, the, in fact, in Lord in the Old Testament is usually translated Jehovah, a name for God. But the New Testament equivalent of Kyrios was also a means by which Roman citizens would address their emperor as a god. And so when he asks them, why do you call me Lord, Lord? It's as if he is saying to them, why are you acknowledging me as the supreme divinity? It's not simply saying, sir, sir, but he's asking them, why are you acknowledging me as supreme divinity? And here he asks them, first of all, if you're calling me Lord, Lord, as to set the stage uh, to what he's going to ask them next. When he says, why do you call me Lord, Lord? And do not do what I say. Essentially, he's saying to them, if you acknowledge me as divine, if you acknowledge me as sovereign over sovereigns, if you are confessing me to be Lord of lords, why aren't you doing what I say? Where is your obedience? In other words, what he is saying is that a confession without obedience is worthless. One writer put it in even stronger terms. He said, a profession without practice is known as common sin. It does you absolutely no good in light of eternity to acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord with your mouth and then do absolutely nothing with knowing that to be true. You can't talk the talk and then not walk the walk. There is no middle ground here. Our eternal life rises and falls depending upon what we do in obedience to God's Word. Now, as I mentioned to you, there is some controversy that came in evangelicalism within the last year or so. There are two opposing views on whether we are to be obedient to Christ and have an active part in our sanctification or not necessarily so much. And it got kind of nasty at times on the internet, and unfortunately it got nasty in the public eye. Meaning, are we to do anything to be obedient to Christ, or are we to not worry about it so much, just live our lives, remember that we are justified, and then wait for the blessed hope and appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ? On the one side, you had people making the accusation of legalism, when you tell people that you need to do this or you need to do that. But then on the other side of the pendulum, you had people that had seemed to advocate what Steve talked about last week in antinomianism. Antinomianism is two words, antinomos, against law, meaning that you don't have to do nothing. You might call this the hyper-grace movement, or the modern-day catchphrase that we all probably are familiar with is, let go and let God. And I would argue that the one side 
was accused of legalism is really far from it. In fact, I would argue that the, what is truly, those who would truly be guilty of legalism would be known today as those who are in the Hebrew Roots Movement, HRM for short, or sometimes they call it the Christian Roots Movement. Everybody is looking to get back to authentic, real Christianity, right? They want to move away from production-oriented, emotionally-driven worship services, and so that is so prevalent in our American landscape. And so these groups like to use Jewish words, and they like to advocate adhering to all of the Old Testament laws and the dietary restrictions. And honestly, what they get done doing is they end up denying the Trinity as well. But I would argue that those are the people that are truly legalistic. They are literally returning back to the law. But is there a sense that we are to do anything in terms of our obedience to Christ and for our sanctification? Well, I think, first of all, by nature of our text here today, this morning, that you have to answer that question with a resounding yes. Yes, we are most certainly called to obey Christ because we're going to see in just a moment he's going to give us an example of the consequences of what happens when you don't. But there is both a passive role and an active role that we do in relation to our sanctification. If you look in your bulletin today in the Baptist Catechism, that's what it's talking about. It's a work of God that both we have to participate in. Active in the sense that it is our responsibility, passive in the sense that it is a work of God. And we can see both of these laid out very clearly when you read Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, that many of you are familiar with. It says, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That is your part. And then verse 13 comes right back around and says, For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. That's God's part. Now we must be clear, this is not salvation by works. But this clearly lays out that a believer is to have an active role in his sanctification, his growing in grace, if you want to call it, or increasing holiness, by being obedient to God by working it out, and that it is accomplished only by the power of God, only by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit in your life as a believer, and it is done for God's good pleasure. Martin Luther said that justification is by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. Meaning, there should be some immediate evidential fruit of someone who has truly been converted and justified. There should be some active obedience in the life of a new believer. It's not always going to be pretty. It's not always going to be perfect, but there should be a definite, inevitable, immediate reorientation of the believer in relation to his or her sin. I think this is what's been a major problem in evangelicalism. We've reduced Christianity down to just praying the sinner's prayer or walking an aisle or with all heads bowed and eyes closed and the lifting of the hand. We put them down as a number for our membership or a number for our baptisms. And then we never disciple them or teach them 
how or even why they would want to obey God. And some would even try to distinguish that and separate the point of justification, the point of sanctification, as if they happened in two spheres of time. I remember a fellow who told me one time from a Wesleyan holiness tradition, he said, I got saved when I was 10, but then when I was 13, the church and I prayed that I would be sanctified, as if it occurred three years later. It's not how it works. Obedience to God is not an optional task for the Christian. James 1.22 says, But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers only who delude themselves. Titus 1.16 says, They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. So just saying you know God, just calling Him Lord, Lord, just having an intellectual assent to knowing that there was a guy named Jesus Christ who lived a couple thousand years ago, without actually doing anything about it, the Scripture says you are detestable, you're disobedient, and you are deluded. Matthew Henry said of this text, We do but mock Christ, as they that in scorn said, Hail, King of the Jews! If we call Him ever so often, Lord, Lord, and yet walk in the ways of our own hearts or in the sight of our own eyes, we are mocking Him. Are you mocking Christ by the manner of your life today? Do you put as much effort into following Christ and abiding in Christ and walking with Christ and clinging to Christ as you do all of your other earthly pursuits? Are you being diligent to guard your heart and watch over your affections so that they will not dishonor Christ? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? But then in verse 47, he tells a parable of two builders to illustrate his point. But first, notice the three characteristics of authentic discipleship in verse 47, which reads this, Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and acts on them, I will show you whom he is like. First of all, it says that everyone who comes to me. These are those who realize that they are spiritually bankrupt without any of their own righteousness to offer to God and are in abject poverty spiritually speaking, before God. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11. You are trusting in the finished work of Christ. You are depending upon His righteousness and not that of your own. Secondly, it says that those who hear my words, these are those who are actively engaged into listening to the gospel message. Hearing the gospel one time and then saying that you've got that box checked in your life and it is not the way to do it. R. Kent Hughes remarked about this, that unfortunately many people come to church and they listen to God's word in the same way they would listen to a flight attendant giving safety instructions. You turn them off, right? Right? But you don't become a believer in Jesus Christ and know all there is to know about God because as you study God's Word, as you learn about His attributes, His characters, you will spend a lifetime here on earth and never, ever be able to know the fullness and the complexities and the depths of the mysteries of God. 
There is a growth that should be occurring in your life as you learn the deeper things of God because you will never, ever be able to plumb the depths of God's Word. But sadly, there are many that are still infants in Christianity and people are still on milk when they should be partaking of the meat of God's Word. And then thirdly, and this is Jesus' point here, he says, he acts on them. It's not just the coming and hearing that Jesus is after, but it's the going and the doing. It's not just the lip service to the things of Christ. It is active obedience to the things of Christ. It means loving your enemies. It means doing good to those who hate you. It means blessing those who curse you. It means praying for those who mistreat you. It is totally contrary and totally radical to what the world expects, and rightly so, because this is what Jesus expects of us. What if we would truly put into practice the things that Jesus has been teaching us here in this sermon? What would our homes look like? What would our churches look like? What would our world look like if we actually did these things instead of just saying, yes, Jesus, we agree with all of that? When is the last time you forgave someone who wronged you? When was the last time you prayed for someone who treated you poorly? When was the last time you did something good to someone even though you know they hate you? We must not only come to Jesus and hear His words, but it is an absolute must that we do the things He's asked us to do. And so He gives us a contrasting illustration of what you and I will be like if we do or don't do these things. Verse 47 says, Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and acts on them, I will show you whom he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid a foundation on the rock. And when the flood occurred, the torrent burst against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who has heard and has not acted accordingly is like the man who has built a house on the ground without any foundation. And the torrent burst against it, and immediately it collapsed, and the ruin of that house was great. And we need to make a quick couple observations about this text. Notice, first of all, that the man took extra pains and extra labors to dig deep into the solid foundation of the rock, because that's where the difference is, the foundation It cost him something. It cost him his time, his labor, his discipline to work at to get to that solid foundation. It didn't just happen overnight. In a spiritual sense, it took him persistence in prayer. It took him diligence in the study of God's word. It took him denying himself sinful pleasure. It took him sacrifice to serve someone else. It took him time to grow in obedience. But beyond all of that, it took a faith in Christ in whom he knows and who has, he has believed and he is convinced that he is able to guard what he has entrusted him against that day. Regardless of the storm that is assured to come to you and me, regardless of the torrents and the floods, he is anchored firmly to the solid rock of Jesus Christ. J.C. Ryle said in his commentary of this, quote, Such a man's religion may cost him much. Like the house built on the rock, it may entail on him pains, labor, and self-denial. 
to lay aside pride and self-righteousness, to crucify the rebellious flesh, to put on the mind of Christ, to take up his cross daily, to count all things but loss for the sake of Christ. All of this may be hard work, but like the house that's built on the rock, such religion will stand. The streams of affliction may beat violently against it, and the floods of persecution dash fiercely against it, but it will not give way. But then we're given a sharp warning by way of contrast of those who don't obey his words by the man who built his house on a faulty foundation. Matthew says that this man builds his foundation on the sand, but Luke states that it has no foundation. It's just simply built on the ground. Either way, it has nothing solid to which to support that house. And that's the point. Because when the winds of affliction come and the torrents burst against it, it immediately collapses. It does not stand. So in a spiritual sense, this man saw no need to regularly pray. This man was slack in his study of God's word and would rather watch the television. This man partook in sinful pleasures and didn't deny himself and look to God for deliverance. This man saw no need to serve others. This man would give up because he did not grow in obedience to Jesus Christ. There's only two types of houses to build. Those with a foundation and those without. And the winds of affliction are coming, and they are most certainly guaranteed, whether you experience in this life or you experience in the judgment that is to come. What kind of life are you building this morning? Are you laboring to dig down deep into the solid foundation of the words of Jesus Christ? Are you bearing fruit in your life? Is your talk matching your walk? Are you persistently patient in your prayer life, casting all of your anxieties upon Him because He cares for you? Scripture is clear. Jesus' words here are very clear. There is no other option by which you will endure the storms of final judgment unless you and I build our lives upon the sure foundation of obedience to the words of Jesus Christ. God help us to be not only hearers of the word only, but help us to be doers of the word as well. Let's pray. Father, we just pray that you would help us to honor you. Lord, let not these words just to come in our head and through our ears and into our mind and not get hands and feet to go and do. God, it's only by the power of your Holy Spirit that we can forgive others, that we can bless others and be merciful to others. Oh Lord, we've got to depend upon your strength to do so because in our hearts and in our flesh, so many times we want to lash out and get revenge and do things that we ought not to. So Lord, help us. Grant us to be merciful to those as just as you have been merciful to us. Help us to build our house on the firm foundation of the words of Jesus Christ. This we ask in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.